The Stream of Time. Hello, and welcome back to the history podcast, The Stream of Time. This episode, we continue our study of Alexander the Great with a focus towards the Battle of Gagamela. Now, I understand that by now we might be a little bit battle-weary, as this will be the third episode in a row that focuses on a battle. Two episodes ago was the Battle at the Granicus, last episode was the Battle of Issus, and this episode we're going to talk about the Battle of Gagamela. The fact is that it's difficult to talk about Alexander without getting into his main four battles, Granicus, Issus, Gagamela, and the Hadaspes, the last of which we haven't gotten into yet, and I'm still trying to decide whether I will go into any detail on. But these first three, again, the Granicus, Issus, and Gagamela, are key clashes against the centuries-old Persian Achaemenid Empire that ultimately resulted in, well, we'll get to that in a second. And it's hard as a historian to just say, well, Alexander was overwhelmed, but he met at Issus and won, and then they went on. But Gagamela was without a doubt Alexander's greatest battle and one of the most astounding battles in world history. And at the very least, it would be a very strange history lecture course that gives details about Granicus and Issus, but glosses over Gagamela. On the other hand, this is an audio course for now. Dun dun dun. And I will do my best to lay out the battle in a way that is detailed without requiring keeping multiple ideas of 3D space in your head and how armies are positioned. With that, when we left Alexander last, he had spent a couple years establishing control and founding the city of Alexandria in the newly conquered Egypt. The Persian king Darius III had fallen back to the historic city of Babylon to regroup and reinforce his army. As I mentioned last episode, Darius made several attempts to negotiate with Alexander by first making demands and ultimately offering the western half of the Persian Empire as well as the hand of one of his daughters in marriage. Alexander pointed out that he was already in possession of both of these. What's important here is that because of these offers, we can see that Darius at this point understood the serious threat that Alexander was posing to the centuries-old Achaemenid Empire. The capture and control of Egypt was the last piece Alexander needed to control the eastern half of the Mediterranean. Having access to a fleet and the ports to support it allowed Darius to still pose a threat to Alexander, and as Alexander had captured all of the port cities from Greece to Egypt, this threat was completely eliminated. Alexander could now focus on heading east to confront the great king Darius again. In early 331 BC, he set out, hoping for a final decisive battle. Specifically, he set out northeast to march through Mesopotamia. It's worth mentioning that Mesopotamia is Greek for the land between rivers, the rivers being the Tigris and the Euphrates. Darius had hoped these rivers would be a natural defense that he could reinforce with guards to prevent Alexander from crossing. While various ancient historians disagree on some of the finer details, what is clear is that Alexander had little difficulty crossing both the Euphrates first and the Tigris after. Darius had been criticized by earlier historians for not harassing Alexander's army more during this period, but this was another case in which Alexander was not where Darius expected him to be. Darius expected Alexander to take a more direct route to Babylon, moving south along the Euphrates towards Babylon. This would have been the more direct route and probably in some ways easier, but it also favored Darius in two ways. One, Darius expected this move, and two, staying close to Babylon made it easier for Darius to keep the army he had assembled over the previous two years cohesive and together. But Alexander took a longer, circuitous route to Darius's north. 
By the time Darius was aware of Alexander's position, it was too late for him to offer a serious opposition to Alexander's crossing of the two rivers. Now, Darius was not in the same position he was at the Battle of Issus two years earlier, which I talked about last episode. At Issus, Darius had to commit his large army to battle or risk not being able to feed and support the large army he was using to pursue Alexander in southern Turkey. But in 331 BC, two years after Issus, keeping a large army supplied in the prosperous area close to Babylon in core Persian territories put Darius under less pressure to fight a battle at a place and time that was not favorable to him. That didn't mean he could just sit at Babylon and do nothing. Alexander was getting close to the Persian capital of Ekbatana. Now before I go on, a quick word about the capital cities in the Persian Achaemenid Empire. There were a lot of them. Ekbatana, Susa, Babylon, Persepolis, and Pasargadae have all been considered capitals of the Persian Empire, even at the time. A Persian king might spend part of the year in one capital, and part in another capital, and spend a month in Persepolis strictly for tax and tribute collection. Many capitals are not, Ekbatana was a crucial city. Darius couldn't let Alexander just take it. And there's no doubt he wanted to just be rid of this guy who had swooped in from what had seemingly been a backwater and taken half of his empire. Alexander, for his part, wanted to battle the Persian king in the hopes of finally defeating him permanently. The Persian king set out with his army to confront Alexander. Darius chose a place that would be favorable to his army. Let's talk about numbers. Ancient sources are notorious for inflating numbers of combatants and accounts, often by an order of magnitude. And while whatever numbers Darius had at Issus were impressive, most of those numbers were neutralized by the small space on which Darius could deploy. So with that said, modern historians believe that Darius probably had about 250,000 combatants mustered for this battle, with about as many support crew and camp followers. Alexander's army was just short of 50,000, probably about 47,000. Alexander would be outnumbered by 5 to 1. In fact, just the Persian cavalry, remember soldiers on horses, in Darius's army, numbered almost as much as Alexander's entire army. And Darius chose a flat plain on which he could fully deploy his army. The plain he chose was close to the small village of Gagamela, which meant something like Camel House. So this battle is most often called the Battle of Gagamela, although it is on occasion referred to as the Battle of Arbella, as the town of Arbella was also fairly close. At any rate, I'm going to refer to it as Gagamela. Darius wasn't just content to choose a place for his battle. He spent days clearing the ground so that it would be flat and favor his forces, especially the hundred or so chariots that he had brought along. In late September 331, Alexander and his scouts had found Darius. Now Darius had begun deploying his troops in the rough order they would be in for battle. What Alexander's scouts saw must have been awe-inspiring. Darius's army was enormous, and it was clear to Alexander that Darius's main strategic goal would be to encircle Alexander's much smaller army and cut down the overwhelmed and surrounded Macedonian army. The problem for Darius was that Alexander had a keen ability to read a battlefield deployment and develop a counter for it. On top of that, his army was more nimble and well-trained than Darius's huge army that had been put together from different ethnic backgrounds. Different parts of Darius's army spoke different languages, and most of them had never fought together, certainly not on the scale that Darius had planned. And with such a large army, Darius had logistical problems. Once he committed this army to the battlefield, 
it would be extremely difficult to reconfigure it. The existence of chariots in Darius's army almost underscores this, as once chariots were placed in position, pretty much the only direction they could go was forward. On the night before the battle, Alexander held a meeting with his generals. As we saw at the battles of Granicus and Issus, Parmenio is once again painted as a foil to Alexander. Parmenio suggested a night attack to surprise the overwhelming Persian forces when they might not be ready, to which Alexander responded, Alexander does not steal victory. He ordered his men to rest and camped on a hill overlooking the battlefield, went to sleep himself, and overslept in the morning. Again, some of these stories are almost too good to be true. On the other hand, there are so many of these types of stories associated with Alexander that it's hard to believe that none of them were true, or that they weren't describing a general character of the man. After ordering a good breakfast for his men, he brought his army to the field to face a Persian army. And what an army it was facing. As mentioned, Darius's army was huge. The battle line probably extended four miles from end to end, or roughly six kilometers. The right and left sides of the army were controlled by two of his satraps, Mazaeus on the right and Bessus on the left. Mazaeus had earlier attempted to slow down Alexander's crossing of the Euphrates and the Tigris unsuccessfully, but he was a loyal satrap to Darius. Keep Bessus in mind, though. We're going to hear more about him later. I mentioned that a large part of Darius's army was cavalry, and he positioned most of these soldiers along the front of his deployment, with the exception that the chariots he had were in front of the cavalry, more towards the side facing where Alexander would be. Darius wanted to encircle Alexander's army, and the best way to do that was with a lot of soldiers who could move fast. Soldiers on horses move fast, and so he relied on his cavalry for the bulk of his strategy. Now keep in mind, just Darius's cavalry numbered almost as much as Alexander's entire army. Once again, Alexander put his cavalry on his flanks and the phalanx soldiers in the center. But Alexander knew that the prime threat in this battle would be if the Persians were able to get behind his army and ultimately surround the Macedonians. Alexander did two things to prepare for this. First, he arrayed some forces on his flanks at an angle instead of facing forward. These forces would be better positioned and oriented to fend off attempts to encircle Alexander's army. Second, he positioned a phalanx of soldiers behind his army. These soldiers would be able to deal with any threats that did manage to get past the first level of defenses. So if you want to picture Alexander's army deployment, think of it as something like a trapezoid with the short edge facing Darius's army. On the right and left of this trapezoid, he had formations of soldiers that would act as added protection against attempts by Darius to encircle Alexander's army. In fact, let's stop for a second, zoom out, and recap what we have so far at the start of the Battle of Gagamela. On Darius's side, he has a probably four-mile-long cavalry. Part of this has chariots in front of it. I'll talk more about the chariots in a bit, but needless to say, they were not maneuverable, nor were they easy to redeploy in different formations or positions. Darius was in the center, surrounded by some of his stronger foot soldiers. And behind all this was a line of foot soldiers, probably Greek mercenaries. As it would be impossible for one man to control his own troops in a dusty plain, his army was split in two among his satraps, Mazaeus, and Bessus. Facing this was Alexander's army that was more or less in the form of a trapezoid, with the short side facing Darius's army. Alexander, as usual, was on the right side of his own army, Darius's left. 
Darius expected some kind of charge from Alexander and was hoping that the chariots would be the key to softening Alexander's advance. Instead, Alexander did something that was only possible because of his well-trained, extremely disciplined army. He started moving the whole trapezoid of his army towards the right, as the trapezoid also slightly pivoted counterclockwise. Darius had hoped to flank both sides of Alexander's army through sheer numbers of cavalry. Instead, what Alexander was threatening to do was to flank the left side of Darius's own army, through Alexander's sheer control of the formations of his army. Besides the danger of being flanked, the unusual maneuver of Alexander's army presented another problem to Darius. Alexander was moving off the field that had been prepared for the chariots. This put more pressure on Darius to make early decisions about whether to use the chariots or not. Darius's general Bessus sent out some cavalry forces to try to stop the strategic movement of Alexander's entire army. But I mentioned earlier that Alexander had set up soldiers specifically to cover the flanks. The forces Bessus sent out against Alexander got mired up in the defensive forces Alexander had set up on his right. Bessus sent more forces out, which got engaged in more of Alexander's defensive formation. After a half an hour of this escalation, the result was not good for Darius. First of all, almost half of Darius's army was now stuck in a secondary conflict off to Alexander's right that wasn't accomplishing anything other than keeping those soldiers off the main battlefield. Second of all, none of this actually stopped the strategic movement of Alexander's army. It was continuing to move right at an oblique angle that would seriously threaten to outflank Darius's larger, less mobile army. Darius used the last thing at his immediate disposal, and in fact, it's very likely this was the last command he gave on the battlefield. He ordered his chariots, as well as a few groups of cavalry, to charge Alexander's army. Let's talk about Darius's chariots. War chariots of this period under Darius were probably led by three or four horses and held about three people, a driver and two archers. The wheels might have blades on the sides. They were good for shock and awe, but any advantage gained by chariots was nullified by the fact that chariots had some extreme vulnerabilities and disadvantages. For example, if just one horse was killed, that could render the whole chariot unusable because, and I'm sorry for this imagery, but a chariot dragging a dead horse is a pretty ineffective chariot. Another disadvantage was that they could only be used on very flat fields, usually specially prepared, which is something that Darius did here on the field of Gagamela before the battle had started. And chariots were difficult to move. Once they were deployed, they couldn't just move to another formation or position or even facing. More crucially, once they were ordered to charge, they were only going one direction, forward. There was no turning around. They were not maneuverable enough and there wouldn't be enough room for any one of them to turn around without bumping into another, much less all of them. So this was a one-shot kind of deal, and it didn't go well. Alexander's army spread out and started aiming for the horses with javelins and arrows. This took out several chariots, which created a huge wreck that many more chariots ran into. Some chariots got through, but the Macedonian army opened into a formation that opened lanes, and the chariots went right between them. The ones that got through that were almost immediately wiped out by the Macedonian forces that had turned around to sweep up the chariots. The chariots were now off the playing field. But there was an even more serious problem for Darius. The order that sent the chariots also sent some more cavalry forces that were in front of him. Him, personally. While he did have his personal bodyguard troops around him, he was still extremely vulnerable at this point. 
Noticing these kinds of openings, even in the heat of battle, is one of many reasons Alexander was such an effective battle leader, and that's what happened here. Alexander saw the very lightly protected Darius, and ordered about a quarter of his army to charge a Persian line, focusing towards Darius. Darius saw this immediately, and like at Issus, grabbed a horse and rode off the battlefield. The Persian soldiers on the field watching this, probably all the Greek mercenaries in the back line, collapsed on seeing this. But the battle wasn't over. Yes, this was a turning point in the battle. We can even say that Alexander achieved victory at this point. But the battle was definitely not over. Most of what we've talked about happened on the right side, the right flank of Alexander's battle line, which as a reminder would have been Darius's left flank since they are opposing each other. This was the Persian side that was commanded by Bessus. While all this was happening, the Persian general opposing Alexander's left flank had committed his own charge against Alexander's left flank, which was under the command of Parmenio, the general we've seen in the past two battles. Parmenio was keeping his side up, but the fighting was still desperate and difficult. Some Persian cavalry had managed to outflank the Macedonian line on Parmenio's side, although strangely they rode off to raid the Macedonian baggage camp instead of participating further in the battle. Even more ironic was that when they attempted to free the Queen Mother, who had been a royal prisoner in the Macedonian camp, she refused help, as she already saw the writing on the wall, and had set one of her daughters up to marry Alexander. Alexander saw the trouble on his left and turned his companion cavalry around. Remember, the companion cavalry was an elite squad that rode with the king that went back to Alexander's father Philip. At this point, a big messy melee formed, which probably represented the fiercest fighting of the entire battle. Eventually, word spread through the Persian forces that Darius had fled the field, and eventually they started leaving the field themselves. After what was probably several hours, the Battle of Gagamela was over, resulting in an overwhelming victory for Alexander. Darius fled to the east. He had a few thousand soldiers, most of them probably Greek mercenaries. He was desperate. Alexander did not immediately give chase, but rather moved south into Babylon. Remember one of the generals in the battle under Darius named Mazaeus? He welcomed Alexander into Babylon, and Alexander made him a satrap of the area. What's important about this is that this is the first time we start seeing the Persian aristocracy turn to Alexander rather than Darius. After Alexander settled things in Babylon, he headed east, not immediately to chase after Darius, but rather to secure important Persian cities. Alexander captured the city of Susa, and after some fierce fighting at an area in the mountains known as the Persian Gates, he captured the cities of Persepolis and Pasargadae. He actually ordered the burning of the city of Persepolis. It's likely he didn't want to, but he was still leading a Greek contingent as the head general, Strategos Autocrator, on a punitive mission against the Persians. Ordering the burning of Persepolis was a symbolic response against the 150 years earlier burning of Athens by the Persians. We're also told another story that a Greek courtesan named Thais suggested it would be fun to burn Persepolis down, but that's very likely apocryphal. As I said, Alexander would have felt political pressure to burn down the beautiful city Persepolis as a leader of a revenge mission against the Persians. By spring of 330, remember Gagamela happened in late September 331, Alexander was ready to head out and find Darius. Darius had been holding out in one of the capitals of Ekbatana, modern-day Hamadan. When he heard Alexander was coming, he fled further east. Alexander stopped in Ekbatana to make a couple important decisions. 
First, he placed Parmenio in charge of the huge treasury they'd been carting around after Gagamela and to base himself in Ekbatana. This is how Alexander was administrating his growingly huge empire. In Greece, his general Antipater was making sure the Greeks wouldn't revolt. The general Antigonus the One-Eyed was in control of Turkey and Egypt, and now Parmenio would be in control of the area around western Iran and the crucial and very large treasury. This also meant there was a supply chain, although that brings me to the second point. He released his Greek soldiers. They could sign back up if they wanted to, but they were paid and they could leave. This would be the beginning of Alexander restructuring his army using Persian soldiers and horses, something we'll get into more next episode. Alexander gave chase after Darius with a strike force of probably 15 to 20,000 soldiers, east. What he found was clear evidence that the Persian army was falling apart. Deserters, chariots left on the side of the road, were all signs that whoever was in control of the army wasn't keeping it together. Alexander also learned that by now, Darius was arrested by his own men and by the general Bessus and kept in chains and was no longer in control. The chase was desperate and even Alexander's strike force shed soldiers as he needed to get faster and faster. But at last, in mid-July 330, Alexander and some men crested a ridge in a surprise attack and caught the remainder of the Persian forces off guard. Sadly, Darius was killed by Bessus's men in order to prevent him from falling into the hands of Alexander and potentially be used as a political tool. Alexander lamented the murder of the great king, but he also probably was relieved on some level, as the murder of Darius meant that he didn't need to do any sort of political pageantry to take over, especially as he already had the support of Darius's mother. Bessus would escape and be a thorn in Alexander's side for a while longer. We'll get to that next episode, but with the murder of Darius III, this was now the end of the Achaemenid Empire started by Cyrus the Great that had lasted over two centuries and been involved in so much important history, both its own and its relation to the Greeks, and Alexander had conquered it in about three years. Alexander was in control of a lot of territory, but there were two things that kept him going. One was Bessus, who would have remained a problem if Alexander didn't take care of him, and the other was Alexander's pothos his yearning to move up country, his pothos for his anabasis. Next episode, we'll see where that gets him. Thanks for listening, and see you next time on The Stream of Time.